Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 27th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we are going to present our commentary on the Gospel of John. This is part 48, and it is subtitled, What is Finished? The reasons for that will become quite clear, I pray, as I proceed. In our last presentation describing the Jewish murder of the Messiah of Israel, we left John's account of the crucifixion of Yahshua Christ with the exclamation by Christ that it is finished, and the resulting explanation by John that, turning the head, he surrendered the spirit. While many commentators speculate upon what Christ had meant where he said that it is finished, John himself tells us before he described the exclamation where he wrote with this, Yahshua seeing that he had already finished all things in order that the writing would be completed, he says, I thirst. A vessel full of vinegar sat there. Therefore, they brought to his mouth a sponge full of vinegar wrapped in hyssop. So where Christ had said, it is finished. John understood that to mean that all things which were written in the books of the prophets concerning the Christ, concerning what would happen to the Christ, were fulfilled. Christ himself had expressed that same thing the evening before as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 26, where he spoke to his disciples at the time of his arrest, and particularly to Peter, who had tried to prevent his arrest. And he said, But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? Then Matthew also wrote, in that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves to take me? I sat with you daily teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. But even earlier, the day before, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 22, there is an account of the words of Christ to his disciples as they are sitting in the house where they celebrated the Passover, where we read, For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So it should be clear that where Christ had said it is finished, he was referring to all of the writings of the prophets concerning what would happen to the Messiah. Even much earlier than that, as Christ and his disciples were still on the road to Jerusalem from Galilee on his last earthly journey, and in Luke chapter 18, it is recorded that then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him, 
and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. So that is what was finished. All things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son were accomplished. That verb for accomplished, teleo, as we see it in Luke chapter 18, that verb for accomplish, teleo, is the same verb translated as finish here in John, where Christ exclaimed, it is finished. It is also often translated as fulfill. However, it is true that Christians do have an obligation to examine the law and the prophets in order to determine precisely what the death of the Messiah means in relation to them. While the things which were written concerning what would happen to the Messiah were fulfilled, not all of the things concerning the Messiah are yet fulfilled. Not yet has the Christ judged all nations. Not yet has he destroyed all of his enemies. Not yet have the scattered children of Israel been gathered to him from the four points of the compass. Not yet has the kingdom of God been delivered to those same scattered children of Israel. And Christ himself had told the apostles in Acts chapter 1 that it was not for them to know when that would happen. None of these things have been fulfilled or fulfilled completely, yet they are all also found in the books of the prophets. For that same reason, to show what was still to come, Christ himself had given to us the revelation. Both Jews and denominational Christians debate incessantly about the meanings of the relevant prophecies. But if Christians believed their Bibles, they would never attempt to learn Scripture from Jews. And Jews themselves have no standing in this, as no interpretation of Scripture they make should ever be believed. As Christ told the Jews in John chapter 5, For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? If the Jews don't believe Moses, we can't listen to any interpretation of the Jews on the works of Moses. Then Christ told them again in John chapter 10, But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Likewise, Paul of Tarsus explained, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that the Old Testament, the writings of Moses, could not be understood without an acceptance of the gospel of Christ. So Christians should never get their opinions of Scripture from Jews, who are antichrists. To the true Christian, the opinions of a Jew should not even ever be heard. The truth is, that upon the first advent of the Messiah, he was to be the Lamb of God. But upon his promised second advent, he shall be a conquering king. Then he shall judge all nations, where all of the goats go into the lake of fire. Then he shall destroy all of his enemies. 
and especially the Edomite Jews, the messengers of the devil. Then he shall gather the children of Israel to himself. Then he shall deliver the kingdom of God to those same scattered children of Israel. At that time, there will be no more Jews. And denominational Christians, those who are actually sheep and not goats, will have no choice but to become identity Christians, as the revelation of Yahshua Christ and the prophecies of the new covenant and of the coming kingdom of God certainly demand. But while in many other places we have discussed the prophecies which relate to the children of Israel in the last days, here we will only offer a brief description of what has changed, endeavoring to determine the significance of what is finished in relation to the death of the Messiah, Yahshua Christ, on the cross at Calvary, because it certainly does not mean that we should dispense with the scriptures of the Old Testament as many Judeo-Christians, many denominational Christians today think that it means. First, however, we must acknowledge the fact that Yahshua Christ was indeed Yahweh God incarnate as a man, the Father as his own Son, the invisible God as one of his own creation, as he said in Isaiah chapter 44. Thus saith Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Then later, in that same chapter, Thus saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am Yahweh that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. And the apostles acknowledge this by expressing the fact that it was Christ who had made all things. For example, as Paul professed in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Yahshua Christ is also the subject of the opening verses of John, where he wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. Later in John, in chapter 11, Christ had said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And again in chapter 14, he professed that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So Paul was in agreement with John and with Christ, where he wrote in Colossians chapter 1, where Christ is the subject, that it is Christ in whom we have redemption through 
his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, as Christ said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. The verses which both precede and follow that passage unmistakably indicate that Christ is indeed the subject of those words. As we have also asserted, Christ was the first light created by God in Genesis chapter 1, a sign of the manifestation of God within his own creation as the light that comes into the world which John declared as being the Christ. So one certainly must be a Christian before one can ever understand Moses. Again, Paul had written in Hebrews chapter 1 that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds. The physical manifestation of Yahweh within his creation, who being the brightness of his glory, the light of Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, Christ in whom there is no darkness and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he, he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. There are many other ways to demonstrate that Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate, but we have before established that as a biblical fact, as we have already discussed in many places throughout this commentary on the Gospel of John. Once it is agreed that Christ is Yahweh God incarnate, the next step is to realize that the children of Israel collectively were recognized to be the wife of of God and the activity at Mount Sinai where the children of Israel had vowed to love, honor, and obey him was an allegory for a marriage ceremony. The relationship of the nation of Israel to Yahweh their God was considered the same as a relationship of a wife to a husband. This is explicit in Jeremiah chapter, chapter 31 where Yahweh said, I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. Then for their sins, their divorce was acknowledged, Isaiah chapter 50. Thus saith Yahweh, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? That bill of divorcement was actually 
found in the prophet Hosea. Hosea having written around the same time as the prophet Isaiah. Just not for quite as long. In Hosea chapter 2, we see a declaration of that divorce. <clears throat> Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. This also included a declaration that the children of Israel should suffer the penalties of the law for their fornication and adultery. And that penalty is death. In Hosea chapter 1, we read a prophecy describing Israel and Judah as two sisters, where Yahweh God professed that he would put Israel off in divorce, but continue to have mercy on Judah. Of course, Hosea was writing much earlier than either Jeremiah or Ezekiel, and Judah would be divorced later. Therefore, in Jeremiah chapter 33, Yahweh made mention of the two families which he had cast off. And Judah's divorce was announced in Ezekiel chapter 23. So she discovered her whoredoms and discovered her nakedness, meaning that the people realized their sin. They realized their fornication. Then my mind was alienated from her, like as my mind was alienated from her sister, referring to the children of Israel, as in Hosea, Israel and Judah are described allegorically as two sisters. They're both divorced from Yahweh. But at this point, in Hosea chapter 1, there is another promise that even though the children of Israel were being put off in divorce, and Yahweh told them that they were no longer his people, that they would nevertheless multiply into a great multitude, and that one day they would once again be called his children. At that point also, both Israel and Judah would once again have one head and be gathered together in one. That is why John had written in chapter 11 of his gospel that Christ would die not for that nation only, but that he also should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. That is also why Paul had later written to the Galatians, who were a portion of those same Israelites who were divorced centuries before by Yahweh, that there is neither Judean nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Yahshua. Then later he wrote to the Colossians explaining, where there is neither Greek nor Judean, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all.
Then, returning to Hosea chapter 2, in spite of her adultery and fornication, and in spite of her being put off in divorce, Yahweh later promised to once again be married to the children of Israel, where, after a description of the punishments which she would suffer, we read a message of mercy, and it says, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. And I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know Yahweh, and it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith Yahweh, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil. And they shall hear Jezreel, which means God sows. So in verse 23, And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, the children of Israel who were divorced. And I will say to them which were not my people, the divorced Israelites, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. That's the whole purpose of Christianity right there, is to fulfill that and reconcile Israel to God. So here is a promise of reconciliation. But there was an obstacle to that reconciliation, which was law. And although Israel did not keep the law, Yahweh God does indeed keep his own law. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, we read, When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it comes to pass that she finds that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. Exactly what happened with the prophet Hosea. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the later husband hates her and writes her a bill of divorcement and gives it in her hand and sends her out of his house, Israel married to all these heathen gods in these other nations, which Yahweh said to them, which Yahweh prophesied they would do, or if the later husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. Thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which Yahweh thy God gives thee for an inheritance. Yahshua Christ. Yahweh God incarnate was called by John the Baptist both the Lamb of God in John chapter 1, meaning that Christ himself would be sacrificed for the sins of the people, and the bridegroom in John chapter 3, meaning that the promise of Yahweh to betroth himself to Israel once again would be fulfilled in Christ. Later, as it is recorded in the three synoptic Gospels, Christ had on several occasions described himself as that bridegroom.
something which is also made manifest in the Revelation, especially in chapters 21 and 22, where the bride is described as a city having the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on its gates. However, because of the law of divorce and remarriage, Yahweh could not be reconciled to Israel unless he could overcome the law which forbade him from taking back a wife who had been married to another. Furthermore, that wife had been adulterous as it is described in the prophets, and the penalty for adultery is death. So in Romans chapter 7, Paul of Tarsus explains Precisely how Yahweh had overcome, had satisfied the law. And he wrote, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband lives, she be married to another man. She shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. This, Paul says applies directly to the children of Israel, where he then states, Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Yahweh God incarnate as Yahshua Christ had died on the cross in order to free the children of Israel from the judgments of the law and to release both himself and Israel from the ordinances of the law, clearing the way for him to be reconciled to Israel once again. Only once Christians finally accept this truth, only then will they be able to discover the real meaning and significance of Christianity. So Paul wrote to people who were also Israelites, which had been scattered in antiquity. In Colossians chapter 2, And you being dead in your sins, and the circumcision, the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Paul had to believe that the Colossians and all of these other people that he wrote to were indeed scattered Israelites. Because Paul himself said that where there is no sin, where there is no law, in the epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, where there is no law, sin is not imputed. I'm sorry, that's Romans chapter 5. Where there is no law, sin is not imputed, and only the children of Israel were given the law, 
So all these tribes, which, which Paul had written his epistles to, and it can be proven in history as well as scripture, all these tribes scattered throughout Europe, which Paul had written his epistles to, were scattered Israelites because Paul was telling them their sins were forgiven. So they must have had sin for sin to be imputed to make forgiveness necessary. If forgiveness, if there's no law, sin's not imputed and forgiveness is not necessary. These were Israelites being reconciled to God. Some denominational Christians errantly take this to mean that the law has ended, that Christians no longer need to follow the law, and that is not true. Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will make manifest myself to him. Likewise, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, where the ten primary commandments are repeated, we read that God shows mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. No change from Old Testament to New. Throughout the gospel accounts, whenever he was asked about the commandments, Christ had referred to the commandments of the law as they are found in the books of Moses. And by that we know what commandments he meant for Christians to keep. But some commentators may also conclude that those references are only to the Ten Commandments. Although that is not true, since Christ had said, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 12, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, and this is the first commandment. That exact wording is not in Deuteronomy chapter 5 or Numbers, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20, where the primary Ten Commandments are listed. And the second is like this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The commandment to love one's neighbor, which he called the second greatest commandment, is not found in the list of the primary Ten Commandments, as they are recorded in Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5. But rather, it is only found in Leviticus chapter 19. So, there are other commandments in the law, other than those ten primary commandments, which Christians must keep. In fact, there are over a hundred commandments in the law where on each occasion Yahweh had stated, Thou shalt not, at least most of which are certainly relevant today. For another example, aside from that of the second great commandment, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul of Tarsus was speaking of the sustenance of ministers of the gospel, and he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 25, where it says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when it treads out the corn. 
Using that passage as an example, even if it was in an allegory, Paul surely expected men to continue to keep that commandment. Another example is in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul spoke of men who defile themselves with mankind, a reference to sodomy, or what we now errantly call homosexuality. In Leviticus chapter 18, we read, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. So we see that is also a commandment which Christians must still keep. In the explicit promise of a new covenant, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, the word of Yahweh says in relation to that covenant that this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. So we see that the law was not done away with. The law was not finished, but rather the form of the law had changed. However, that does not mean that Christians may dispose of the old covenant commandments. Since Paul wrote that for whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. In the prophecy of Daniel, which concerns the Messiah, we see other things which were prophesied to be finished in Christ. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. The old covenant was already broken irreparably, as it is explained in Ezekiel chapter 44, in Zechariah chapter 9, and elsewhere. So the covenant which the Messiah came to confirm must have been the same new covenant which was promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, in Ezekiel chapter 37, and in Malachi chapter 3. Yet the sacrifices and oblations certainly did cease at this time after the cutting off of the Messiah when the temple was destroyed as both Daniel and Christ had also foretold. So even the Jews who despise Christ testify by their actions that he is the Messiah because they admit that they, that they no longer make those sacrifices. But regardless of what the Jews do, the children of Israel should certainly make no more sacrifices or oblations as Christ himself is the last of them. So with no kingdom to administer, with no sacrifices or oblations to dispense, the Levitical priesthood required by the Old Testament was also, by the Old Covenant, was also made obsolete. However, the Messiah was to be a priest of a different order, as it says in the 110th Psalm. Yahweh said unto my Lord, 
Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Yahweh shall send a rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. Yahweh has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ himself had cited this psalm in reference to the Messiah. In reference to himself. It is evident that the Melchizedek priesthood was the original priesthood of our Adamic race. And Abraham tithed to a priest called Melchizedek. The providence of God, therefore, informs us in the Psalms that the Levitical priesthood was not intended to endure forever because Yahweh certainly foresaw the failure of the old covenant which established it. Otherwise, Christ would not be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So Paul, in his epistle to the Hebrews, went to great lengths to explain the fulfillment of prophecy in this manner, in reference to a change in the priesthood as well as a change in the law. Therefore he wrote in Hebrews chapter 7, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. The change in law is for Christian Israel to follow the law which Yahweh God has written in their hearts, while, as Paul said in Galatians of the Old Covenant Law, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So while the commandments in the law stand, as Christ commanded his followers to keep them, the rituals and the sacrifices and the outward appearances, the maintenance of outward appearances, required in the Old Testament are done away. In relation to the outward appearances, the circumcision and peculiar dress and other requirements of the law, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, For he is not a Judean which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, those things don't mean anything because the children of Israel had them and never kept the law. But he is a Judean, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God, because Yahweh doesn't want children who play the game well and dress right and do everything in rituals perfectly, Yahweh wants children that obey him in all of the areas that really count. At that time, 
as there are today, many Jews claim to be Israelites based on their keeping the law, who are not truly Israelites inwardly, which is by their race and their willingness to truly obey Yahweh their God, rather than just maintaining appearances and performing rituals. Proceeding through post-crucifixion history, the Judeans, who rejected Christ and sought their own justification through rituals, had also sought to impose them on Christians, for which we see the disputes and resolutions of the apostles throughout the books of Acts and their epistles, especially those of Paul. Those Judeans who continued to reject Christ ultimately became subsumed by the Edomite blood, but the mixing by the mixing with other races in the diaspora of the wicked, and for that they deserve the accursed label of Jew, which they now bear. The diaspora of the wicked is not the diaspora, as they like to pronounce it, the diaspora of Israel. The true Israelites were scattered many centuries earlier and never returned, ultimately becoming many of the nations of modern Europe. True Israelites among the Judeans who did accept Christ ultimately lost their identity as Judeans having become Christians, so they were never called Jews. But Christ himself said of those who rejected him, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 21, that there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the nations until the times of the nations be fulfilled. Saying this, Christ was only repeating an earlier prophecy of the bad figs found in Jeremiah chapter 24. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. That describes the entire history of the Jews until modern times, when today other biblical prophecies of the last day, of the last days, have begun to unfold. But that is still how Christians should consider Jews today, as a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse wherever they go. That's how Christ told us that they would be seen. Now that we have finished discussing what is finished, at least to the extent that we can do so here, we shall proceed with John chapter 19, where we left off with the death of God incarnate at the hands of the Jews. Therefore, the Judeans, John chapter 19, verse 31, the Judeans, since it was the preparation day 
that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a great day, asked Pilate that they may break their legs and they may be taken away. The Codex Vaticanus has that parenthetical remark, for that Sabbath was a great day. In verse 31 to read, for that was the great day of the Sabbath. However, the present day was the preparation day, and the Sabbath had not actually yet begun. The Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text have the words for, since it was the preparation day, to follow the parenthetical remark, but for some reason the King James Version, which usually follows the majority text, did not follow it here. We read in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, and if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree. But thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God. That thy land be not defiled, which Yahweh thy God gives thee for an inheritance. Therefore the Judeans used the excuse that it was the preparation day to avoid doing the dirty work themselves. The Sabbath actually began that evening, which is clarified in Luke chapter 23, where it says, and that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew on. But although the preparation day was not actually a feast day or a Sabbath, if any of the Judeans had touched a dead body, they would have been considered defiled and not able to celebrate the Sabbath at the appointed time. This we read in Numbers chapter 9. And Moses spoke unto the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at evening in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that Yahweh commanded Moses. So did the children of Israel. And there were certain men who were defiled by the dead body of a man, because they had to move it, bury it that they could not keep the Passover on that day, and they came before Moses and before Aaron on that day. They actually begged to keep the Passover on a different day, and they were permitted after they were washed of their uncleanness. Perhaps this was also within the providence of God, as we see that the Roman soldiers seem to have had more mercy on the dead body of Christ than the Jews themselves may have had. Therefore, these soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other, which they crucified with him, the two robbers. But coming to Joshua, as they saw that he had already died, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced the ribs with his lance, and immediately there came out blood and water. According to at least some physiologists, crucifixion causes a slow, painful death through suffocation if heart failure does not occur first. And if the leg muscles remain strong, death would be prolonged. So breaking the leg bones 
prevented that and accelerated the process. The legs of Christ were spared because he appeared, he appeared dead. Yet it must have been easier for a soldier to pierce him rather than to break the bones. And that also helped to fulfill prophecy. So John continues in his reference to his in reference to his own witness of the fulfillment of those prophecies. And he says, And he, having seen it, has testified. And truthful is his testimony. And he knows that he speaks truth in order that you also may believe. For these things happened in order that the writing would be fulfilled. A bone of his shall not be broken. It can be imagined that John is referring to the 34th Psalm, where we read, Yahweh is nigh to them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. Yahweh redeems the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. However, Christ was the Lamb of God, and the ultimate Passover offering for the sins of the children of Israel. Therefore, he was also treated in accordance with the laws of the Passover Lamb. And we read in Exodus chapter 12, from the Septuagint, because it varies from the versions based on the Jewish Masoretic text. In reference to the Passover, nothing shall be left of it until the morning, and a bone of it ye shall not break, but that which is left of it till the morning ye shall burn with fire. Then, again, later in the chapter, from the King James Version, because it's the same there and in the Septuagint, In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. John seems to be referring to this rather than to the psalm. Although the concept expressed by the psalm certainly correlates. And verse 37 of John chapter 19. And again, another writing says, They shall look at he whom they have pierced. As it says in a messianic prophecy in the 22nd psalm, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet referring to the crucifixion, the act of crucifixion requiring that. But here John cites Zechariah chapter 12, which also helps to establish the fact that the psalm is indeed a messianic prophecy. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now, 
Yahweh says, they, sh they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. So Christ is Yahweh, the son, and the firstborn. It's that simple. This has not been fulfilled completely. As we read in a revelation where it is apparently speaking of some time yet in the future, Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. But there was one prominent Judean who did care for Christ. Actually, there were two. Even to risk being defiled and unable to celebrate the Passover. Then, after these things, Joseph from Arimathea, being a student of Yahshua, but secretly on account of fear of the Judeans, asked Pilate that he may take the body of Yahshua, and Pilate permitted it. Therefore, he came and took his body. The majority text has took the body of Yahshua. The Codexes Sinaiticus and Washingtonensis simply have took him. I didn't check the King James. It probably says took the body of Yahshua after the majority text. Yes, took the body of Jesus in the King James Version. There are reasons for every little difference between the Christogenian New Testament and the King James Version. Usually, they're pretty important reasons when there are differences. A lot of them are just trite and, and don't really change the meaning of the text at all. Most of the differences in the manuscripts don't really change the meaning at all. Concerning Joseph of Arimathea, and I even hate having to talk about this because I don't like talking about things that aren't true, <laughs> not really, that there are medieval stories linking Joseph of Arimathea to the legend of the Holy Grail and the first British Christian church, which was purported to be at Glastonbury. While it is true that Christianity was brought to Britain in the first century, and it had to be brought by someone, for various reasons, I do not accept many of these stories. In fact, I even reject any interpretation of Jerome's translation of the word for counselor as it is in the Vulgate, as decurio in Mark 15, verse 43, and Luke 23, verse 50, where some claim that must refer to a Roman official. That's just bullshit. It's simply not true. The Roman word, Decurio, as Jerome used it, only referred to a councilman of a city or a municipality, and that was the function or a colony, and that was the function of the Judean Sanhedrin of the time of Christ. Joseph of Arimathea was a Judean counselor and not a Roman official. The Greek term balutes is literally counselor, 
and the context of these gospel accounts all indicate that Joseph of Arimathea was on the Council of the Judeans, popularly called the Sanhedrin, after a compound Greek term meaning a council. And there is no evidence that he was any sort of Roman official. The Greek word, sunedrion, is translated in the King James Version as council in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 26, Mark chapters 14 and 15, Luke chapter 22, John chapter 11, and Sanhedrin is a corrupted form of that word which is employed by the Jews of today. So we are not informed of precisely whom Joseph of Arimathea may have been, as he was not mentioned earlier in the Gospel of Accounts. But he was a wealthy and influential Judean, a member of their council, and that is all we are told about him. However, he is mentioned here at this point in all four Gospels. In Mark, he is called a prominent counselor. But in Matthew, he is simply called a rich man of Arimathea, named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. In the Gospel of Luke, it is evident that Joseph did not concur with the Pharisees in their plot to kill Christ. So that was indeed the council to which he had belonged, where we read in chapter 23, and behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just, a just man. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them, meaning the Jews to kill Christ. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Judeans, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was not a Roman mining minister, which is some kind of medieval lie. It's just a lie. Joseph of Arimathea must have been a notable man in Jerusalem, as he had access to Pilate in order to ask for the body of Christ. He also must have been a man of means, since he owned a newly hewn tomb located in a garden outside Jerusalem. According to the law, which we have already read from Deuteronomy chapter 21, the body had to be buried that day, which left the apostles no time to take his body back to Galilee and no time to acquire a tomb of their own. Perhaps the fact that Christ was buried in the tomb of a wealthy man indicates a literal fulfillment of Isaiah 53.9, a messianic prophecy which we have already discussed quite recently at length here, where it says, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. So all of these different aspects of the event, the events of the crucifixion and the character of the enemies of Christ and the disinterested parties, who are the Romans, and his friends, his disciples, had all come together 
to satisfy the law and the prophets. And that is indeed a marvelous demonstration of the providence of Yahweh our God. Now the second notable Judean who had cared for Christ. Then Nicodemus also came, he having come at first to him at night, bearing a mixture of ointment and aloe, about a hundred pounds. Nicodemus is only mentioned in the Gospel of John, in chapters 3, 7, and here. And he must also have been a man of means, as he was a member of the council, and here he has brought a hundred pounds of ointment and aloe. The ointment here is Smyrna, which is the Greek term used to describe myrrh. M-Y-R-R-H. It's spelled in English. The same ointment was among the three gifts which the Magi had brought to the Christ child, as it is described in Matthew chapter 2. It is also the same ointment which was used by Mary to anoint the head and feet of Yahshua while he dined at the home of Martha and Mary in Bethany, where Judas Iscariot had protested that ointment of great value had been wasted, as it is recorded in John chapter 12. If that small measure of ointment, one pound or litre, was worth 300 denarii, and here we have a hundred pounds of myrrh mixed with aloe, using the same word litra for pound, this must have cost a considerable sum. According to Liddell and Scott, the litra was a pound of 12 ounces. So 100 pounds is perhaps 75 of our modern pounds. But that does not deduct from the value that it had at the time. As we also said in our commentary on John chapter 12, 300 denarii, the value of one pound of myrrh, was more than a Roman soldier was paid in one year. So here the value must have been many times that amount, 75 times perhaps. I don't know if it's worth more or less because it's mixed with aloe. The Codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Washingtonensis have fold rather than mixture, which is um, a, a kind of strange word. I can't describe a fold of myrrh and aloe, so I think that's probably a scribal error, a ligma rather than migma. There's a word in the next verse which we translate as perfumes, but the King James Version has spices. That word is actually the Greek word aroma. It's a noun in Greek referring to um, pungent unguents, perhaps. It was Nicodemus who had come to Christ in the night several years earlier, near the beginning of his ministry, as it is recorded in John chapter 3. While the account of his having become a disciple is not conclusive there, Nicodemus must have been persuaded by Christ in their conversation that night and later became a disciple. Like Joseph, Nicodemus must also have been on 
their counsel, and he too had resisted the adversaries of Christ in their meetings, as it is recorded in John chapter 7. There, when the chief priests and Pharisees had sent men to seize Christ, then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus said unto them, He that came to Jesus by night being one of them. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee, as John had also said in chapter 3. Nicodemus saith unto them, Does our law judge any man before it hears him, and knows what he does? They answered and said to him, Are you also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. So Nicodemus resisted the enemies of Christ, and they despised him for it. But now Nicodemus is here to help his fellow counselor, Joseph of Arimathea, and it is probable that it is probable that each man was aware of their mutual but covert love for Christ, as John also said that Joseph remained a disciple secretly for fear of the Jews. That brings us to verse 40. Therefore they took the body of Yahshua and they bound it in linen cloths with the perfumes, just as it is a custom with the Judeans to bury. This burial custom, as it is described here, would apparently be limited to wealthy Judeans. I don't think anybody could afford 75 years worth of a soldier's pay to anoint a dead body. Christ had that luxury, as we have already cited, Isaiah 53, 9, where it says, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Lazarus was wound in linen cloths in this same manner, but because he was expected to emit a strong odor, perhaps he was not covered with the ointment. But that also may be why Mary had a pound of myrrh available to use in anointing Christ after Lazarus had been raised. Wealthier families, families that owned land, did indeed, did indeed keep family tombs where the dead were laid out until the flesh decayed, and then the bones were moved to an ossuary, a box built of wood or carved out of stone for that purpose, and the space was reserved for the next family member who would pass. Eventually, the ossuary, which actually means bone box or bone container, the ossuary would contain the bones of many family members. Poorer families used common fields and buried their dead in small shafts, examples of which, actually many examples of which have been found by archaeologists in Palestine. Verse 41, now there was in the place where he was crucified a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one as yet was buried. And here I may conjecture that perhaps the virgin tomb 
shadows the circumstances of the virgin birth, and Christ was resurrected, first born from among the dead, just as he had come into the world in the first place. So there, verse 42, on account of the preparation day of the Judeans, because the tomb was near, they had laid Yahshua. Joseph of Arimathea must have been wealthy, as he owned an estate outside the gates of Jerusalem, which contained a garden, and in the garden was a tomb hewn from rock. This virgin tomb he must have planned and had hewn for his own burial, so he must have also had a family to whom he hoped to leave his estate. While the city was destroyed shortly after the resurrection, not quite 40 years, these are at least there are there are at least three tombs which may meet this description, which have been found near Jerusalem by archaeologists, and they compete for identification as the tomb in which Christ was buried. On another note, here it is also evident that not everyone who resists the spiritual wickedness in high places, the phenomenon of Jewish world supremacy, should be vocal and outspoken about it. If Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had forced the issue at the councils of the Pharisees and chief priests, if they had openly rebelled against them, then they themselves would have been persecuted and they would not have been in this position to do this service to God in fulfillment of the writings. Surely there must have been other services which they also performed, but which of which we are not aware. While this concludes our commentary on John chapter 19. Surely we may discuss other aspects of these events before we move on to chapter 20 and the account of the resurrection of the Christ, as he had said in John chapter 10. Speaking of his own life, I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again, meaning to be resurrected. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel, and good night.